Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice as an advising representative with Gold Investment Management, LTD, a firm registered as a portfolio manager and located in Edmonton, Alberta. This podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Catchers, or GIM have any ownership of interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Joel, welcome back. How was the week, buddy? It was a good week, good weekend. I'm a little exhausted. My kid pretended to nap today, but didn't. And then it's 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 quite the gap, you know. If you're not feeling it, it's a horrifying time when your kid stops napping. I got to, my my son's four, so it's been a little a little while for us. But I mean, you just you don't realize how much as a young parent that you just, especially with just the one kid at the time. Like how much you rely on those, that hour and a half, like even an hour, an hour and you can just get some stuff done. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) I was thinking about just like locking him in the closet for an hour and seeing how he dealt, deals with that. But yeah. Just turn the monitor off and it's quiet time all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not a bad idea, but otherwise great weekend of sports. The Oilers showed up on Saturday and it was very fun to watch. I think a lot of people were very excited about that win. I'm, while we did win by a significant margin, I think just Vegas didn't show up, which made us look better. So it was pretty. Yeah, that was like a that was like them on the road being happy with a split. That's mm-hmm. almost what it looked like. That's mm-hmm. how they showed up. But yeah, good. On, I mean, it's going to be I feel like it's probably going to end up being a long series on like the, the Leafs ones. So but it's it's one of those things I, I feel like it's going to be kind of now that they've felt each other out, I feel like it's going to be haymaker, haymaker the rest of the way. So probably in for a long one, but I'll take all the playoff hockey we can get. It's the best time of year. I think I, or no, I wouldn't have said it last week because it wouldn't have been true yet. But like, I mean, talk season's over for all the accountants. So we're super happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We can go back to normal life and actually enjoy some of this stuff. But all kidding aside, it's, it's always, always a good time of year for this stuff. Outside of today, the beautiful weather that we've been having and everything. So it's just it's the best so, to do both. So I want to kind of stay on this this sports track before we go to a market update because mm-hmm. I think that's a good idea this time around. And I want to comment on a few things. So one, my brother made a point to tell me that the viewership for the NHL is up 22% year over year in for playoff hockey. Yeah. And it's my understanding that last year's playoffs – was the most watched of all time. And they've now eclipsed that by an additional 20% this year. So they beat hard comps by 20 Mm -hmm. after having a horrific regular season. Now, without commenting on why, that's fantastic news. Just fantastic news. I'm super happy. I think a lot of that has to do with 
major markets making it in. Toronto winning, huge, huge for numbers, you have to assume. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people are assuming we need to have American teams in the playoffs or make it to the finals. I think just having the best teams with the best players, superstars in the finals is exciting. I'm tuning into the NBA games right now. And that tonight's game, the the Suns versus the Nuggets, that was Mm. insane. The shooting percentages, the the superstars, and and truly getting to appreciate just how good Jokic is, is just something I don't really see during the regular season because I'm not going to pay attention to a Nuggets game. But I just watched Durant versus Jokic, and it was amazing. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you comment on on the, like, I guess on the viewership and the regular season. Like, I, I wonder if part of that is, like, I mean, you've talked about it a few times in terms of, like, the the niching or the fragmenting of our entertainment value. And it's, like, I think if you're a smart enough sports fan, like, of course, there's going to be, you know, Saturday night games or Friday night game or if you're making an event or whatever it might be, it's always going to be front and center. But the fact that there's 82 games in the NHL, 82 games in the NBA, I feel like it's almost like if you're an educated sports fan, you're like, just wake me up in April. Like I'll come and I'll watch the games that matter. Basically. Like if you're a diehard fan, like hundred percent, you're always following it. But like, even me, like, I mean, I consider myself a pretty diehard Edmonton fan, but if I miss a game or if I'm just following it on Twitter or even just following it in our group chat, cause that's basically Twitter <laughs> for another game. So it's just like, that's good enough for me. Sometimes I don't need to see every play, like how I, maybe five years ago would have been like, I need to sit down watch the whole game, et cetera. So I feel like that's kind of a change. And then, but I think once you get to the, the games that really matter, like you said, the superstars head to head, it's going to make a big difference. I think it's interesting. Like, so the, I guess to ask you live, cause we didn't talk about this beforehand, but on those that up 22% or whatever, is that across the board or is that like American stats only? Good question. And I yeah. don't know. Because I feel like, I mean, I'd assume like even if Canadian was up that much kind of thing or whatever, it wouldn't make that big of a blip on the overall if it's like talking about Sportsnet and ESPN and TNT. But I can definitely see it picking up momentum in the States. Like, I mean, like anything, I think in their first year, it's still feeling out process, et cetera. I I feel like they've probably gotten a little bit better, a little bit the production value, et cetera, and how they're pumping up games. We've talked about, I think there's a lot of newsworthy things going on in NHL too. Like we haven't really circled back on the Ottawa Senators sale for a while because it's kind of drawn out a little longer than we thought it was going to because of how many people are interested. Mm-hmm. So I know I was kind of on the fence, but agreeing with you a bit that the ending sale price and that was going to end up being higher than the thing that Forbes valuation we looked at was like 650 million or something. And now like the Ryan Reynolds group is prepared to offer a billion dollars apparently. And now Snoop Dogg is in with another group making an offer. And then I'm not sure if you saw this, but The Weeknd also just partnered up with two billionaires out of Toronto that's also making a third bid. Yeah, it's it's really it's spicing up. It's heating up. It's not surprising to me because I think that there's a lot of control that can go into it. Also, it's my belief that it's the last standing. It's kind of like Gucci. And if you can get your hands on one of those legacy 50, 100 year businesses and a revenue line item inside of it, you want to own it and you need to own it because it just continues to compound and compound and compound. 
And there's there's staying power and longevity in these things. And it's not going away. The NHL is not going anywhere. Well, perhaps they've failed and there needs to be changes. It is just a product that isn't going to devolve anytime soon. While it's not growing as fast as it should, it's not going to. So if you have that opportunity, you're going to overpay for it. You might pay two and a half times too much for it, but you won't care because in 15, 20 years, and if you if you go through that Pompliano email that he sent out last week where he was discussing mm-hmm. the revenue share and the valuations of these teams, they're compounding at a 16% year-over-year care yeah, like over long say, periods of time. Yeah, like, I mean, we talked about the NFL at the Washington Commander sale a few weeks ago and talk, and some of the quotes out of that basically saying no one's ever been mad about what they've paid for an NFL team, essentially. <laughs> so, and I think that there's obviously going to become a time where things plateau or change or, you know, whatever it might be, it won't be doing that same kind of clip on a year over year basis. But for right now, yeah, it's just a, it's a hot thing, especially with getting these conglomerate private equity slash other famous people involved in, in the ownership, which obviously just increases overall excitement amongst either fans or even even non-fans right if they're interested in these people who are wanting to be sports owners that kind of makes them intrigued and interested too so it's it's going to be really interesting to see where that ottawa thing lands up on but it's good to see that the that the nhl has gotten some more eyeballs this year and and hopefully that continues like we've, we've talked about before how nhl seems to have the big kick first two rounds and then peters off and then you were mentioning how the NBA, one of the best games of the playoffs so far was tonight with those two, those two juggernauts going at it. Some of the best superstars all in one game. They they tend to those superstars always tend to find their ways to those final like the the conference the conference finals and the NBA finals, and so they tend to always get more eyeballs at the end, or there seems to be more drama at the end because it's almost like now we're getting the matchups that we want. So. Hopefully the NHL can have something similar happen this year. I'm not sure who's obviously we know who we want to get to the end, but that would be an ideal thing for the NHL too. So you keep your, these, these marquee superstars and not necessarily the quote unquote, hopefully the hope, hopefully the best team also includes the superstars that you want to be in the finals essentially. Cause the NBA basically that happens for them every single year where they have yeah. at least one or two of their top 10 stars are in the finals every single year. Yeah. And I, I have to restate this because I think people still don't grasp it. And if they do, they forget. Hockey has the most luck involved in a win out of any of the sports. Basketball has the least amount of luck mm-hmm. in the outcome of a game. So that is a great explain- explainer for why you end up getting the superstars at the end. It's why having the greatest player in the world is a much larger impact. Someone who hits more shots more frequently has more opportunity to show his his skill and his greatness then then they end up doing well that's just a fact you can see it in on every single boarding betting app right mm-hmm. so that's a big reason for that but i want to get back to and, and maybe speak more to the entertainment and why hockey and sport is i think i think it needs to go down to a 60 game season because if we're getting if we can increase the the viewership by 20 25% even heck i think it would increase it by more than that 
where you're not skipping games. If you you remove 20, 25 of them, you're going to increase the value and the spend. Now, I understand that it's going to be really, really difficult to make up for 10 home games every single year in terms of revenue. That's 18,000 bucks in those seats that you need to make up money from. But I think it could be done. And it's my opinion that it's probably going to hurt for the first 10 years. But if they can somehow continue to pay the players and then the owners look at this, notice that their, their regional sports networks are effectively on life support. You have a, and this doesn't matter on the sport really, with the exception of the NFL, all of them are falling apart. And if they can sacrifice the next five to 10 years of profits, they're all billionaires for crying out loud. If they could sacrifice for 10 years so that they can produce a better product, one that is watched by more people, they're going to benefit in the long run. Because unfortunately, content has become a commodity with the exception of major sports and probably HBO and Disney. And what does that mean? It means that TikTok pays its stars zero. And people will do anything. They will spend hours making a 10-second reel or TikTok video. And they will pay them nothing. And that means that our time is fractured. It's been reduced to this point where we're entertained by so many different things. The competition has never been stronger and it's going nowhere. It's just going to increase. So I think that sport needs to recognize this, that they're never going to be able to get back to that 2014 peak where everybody tuned into sports because there's literally nothing else to do. We need to understand that that's the case. And if we want to see, and I mean, today's episode has a lot to do with sports. We're talking about the NBA, MLB, NFL, NHL playoff revenue sharing model that Pompliano posted. If they Mm -hmm. want to continue to see 16% keggers on their valuation of their team, because nobody, none of these families that own these teams need it for the cash flow. That isn't what they're, they're focusing on. You don't say (laughs) yeah the walton family isn't concerned whether or not the denver broncos make money next year so what i'm suggesting is that they want to see their valuation of the team go up that's where they're making their money i mean outside of the vanity part where they really just enjoy it they like Mm. being able to be the important owner that in the city that owns the franchise the fame the, the the glory that comes with it they want the value to go up. I understand that. Of course they do. And I think that something that's really important is to make, to increase the average value of every game. That needs yeah. to be the focus. It has to be. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, I think this reckoning with the regional sports network too, like, and, and the importance, like we've talked about before with, with those, the three other leagues outside of the NFL, like the reliance on that. I think the, the changes that are coming from that, I think might start spurring some new thoughts as you kind of laid out there amongst some of the owners and maybe them getting together and and talking about this. Like you've you've already seen a, a shift, especially like NBA only basically. And this is a pretty controversial thing when you talk about like competition and well, the Phoenix Suns. Sorry. Like in terms of, so they just, well, my understanding is they pulled their rights from their regional sports network that has held them since 1996 or 1998 or something like that, mm-hmm. and is now going to be broadcasting games for free on their own app. 
Oh, okay. I was going to say that that's a really, that's really interesting note. What I was sorry, what I was going to talk about was that even the players have started doing this in the NBA in terms of like load management and like yeah, them saying like, so that some of the, now not every star is on board with this, obviously, but there is quite a few out there. The Clippers would be the kind of the most, I mean, they haven't had success with it. So I guess maybe this isn't a good idea, <laughs> but, but lots of guys are like, no one's playing a full 82 anymore. Like, I mean, that was kind of viewed as like, you know, back in the day, it's like, you know, that was your best ability is availability, et cetera, kind of thing. Right. But I mean, LeBron, even LeBron was 82 games a year. I mean, he's 40 now, so he should be taking a shift off here or there, but, (laughs) but lots of guys are only playing call it 60 to 65, maybe 70 games tops kind of thing. And it's saying, Hey, like maybe take this back to back off. Maybe don't do this. Like you don't need to be playing against the Charlotte Hornets or, you know, whatever it might be. And that has, I think, paid off for certain players. Like I'm, there's, there's some that have maybe gone to the extreme, but others that are kind of using this as a, as a gauge to say, like, you're still worth $300 million to me, as long as you can produce, like we talked about off the top when it matters most. So, cause again, like they would, we can kind of get into some of these, some of these playoff revenue sharing models too. And like why the NBA matters the most for this and like in terms of individual owners or individual teams but i mean playing 82 games and if you're seeing the value of that as you put it the value of those 82 games being marketably less than what it means to go further in the playoffs or what certain games are worth during the regular season from a from a revenue standpoint why do you want your guys killing themselves over things that are putting money in their pocket or your pocket. So I could see there being kind of a shared interest there too, eventually to say like the, as long as obviously in the players, it's the, the toughest thing to get over will be the bargaining between the owners and the players. Cause the first thing the owners are going to say is that you're not going to make as much money because you're not playing as many games and the players will be like, we're never taking a step back. So there's, there's going to have to be a solution where it's like everyone's kept whole, but like, what is that going to be in order to make sure that, you know, values and, and revenues kind of maintain on a go forward basis. And like, it, like you said, there's going to have to be potentially some, some understanding that's going to take some time to get there when you're trying out a new I, model, but I don't think that this can be done at a 50, 50 revenue sharing model. I think, and this will shock you. It needs to go to a 75, 25, 80, 20, where the players are now receiving 80% of revenue for a short period of time. Because I don't think they'll ever vote for this because, and they shouldn't because the, the duration of their careers does not um, lend itself to being allowed to take a pay cut for mm-hmm. three or four years. You have, what's the average career in the NBA and NHL and NFL, like three to five years. For so sure. yeah, probably less. there's time. no way you're going to take a pay cut during your, your peak earning years in your twenties. And they shouldn't, I don't think they should. I think the mm-hmm. owners need to recognize this. They're the ones with the business sense. They're the ones that know that truly understand and then see the value accrue to their team values. And I think they need to, to, to make this decision. If anything, the small market teams should be the ones that should be jumping on this. And they're the ones that you would assume at first blush that would say no, especially when you start to look. And this is now my, my own idea. And I haven't stolen this from anyone. I think that in my opinion, if you look at just how impactful Giannis, Giannis has been in Milwaukee and the valuation of that team, it has effectively skyrocketed since they won uh, their most recent 
championship. And they have arguably the best player on the planet, top three anyways. And he's dedicated to the team. He's staying there. And the valuation of the team has gone through the roof. So now with this in mind, and, and just for some numbers to, to wrap around this, the, the team value has gone from 2013, 312 million to today being valued at 3.5 billion. And that's a 27% year over year compounded annual growth rate or a 1,021% return on that purchase. And we could probably agree here that it's largely based on the fact that they just won. They have a top three generational talent who is likely going to end up in the top 15 of all time. And I'm now trying to bring this back to sports where, especially the NHL, where if you're a small market team, you get a superstar. You don't want 82 games for Connor McDavid. You want him to make it to the finals. So you don't want him to get hurt. Not only that, you want to increase where they're most impactful. So we've been talking about penalties, talking about ways in which you can keep them on the ice for longer periods of time. How do we get our superstars making more of an impact so that people are more interested in watching? And I think that the the, the smaller owners have traditionally been the ones that push against 50-50 um, revenue sharing models. If I'm Daryl Cates, who's worth $6 billion, he does not need the cash flow from the Edmonton Oilers. But it would look really good if the Oilers were worth $3 billion one day. And if we win three Stanley Cups, they will be. And that's a significantly larger percentage than or even than any cash flow could ever be generated from an additional 20 games a year or 10 home games, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be a way where this happens. And it's just it's going to take some these owners to, to think longer term about and how they're making money. And I think it's possible. I think if there's anyone who's willing to do it, it's going to be someone who's made most of their money in business. Someone mm -hmm. who's made most of their money with the the value, the capital gain on their the company that they started. And it's unlikely that it'll ever happen if you're depending on the players. Because it's just unfair to ask that of them. Yeah, and I, I think obviously what needs to happen is something needs to break first and we're starting to see cracks so I think there's, <clears throat> we let let off the discussion talking about some really positive things that are happening at NHL or NBA or in, in some of these sports leagues. And there's always going to, there is lots of positivity around it. And there's, there's still a lot of eyeballs out there on it. And it's, <clears throat> I think you can, but you can see other things like the old model of things starting to change. And there's, there's some cracks and some, some cogs missing in the old wheel. So you'd like to hope that hopefully some fresh minds or some, some of the minds of the owners or the groups of people who own some of these businesses to come up with some fresh ideas to say, maybe we weren't focusing any energy on this because it was kind of like, this is a cash cow or this is just a whatever. This is a, a novelty thing that we're owning and all of our brain power is going towards the, the bread, the breadwinning type things that we do in our portfolio. But, you know, maybe we can make this, you know, that much more valuable in the future by changing some things up and bringing some more ideas to the table. So oh, yeah. I, I, I'm really, I'm really hopeful because I, I think there is a, some, there's probably some, obviously some extreme ideas like, you know, potentially shortening a season by 20 games might be a, a bit richer, but the economics maybe not, might not work or might not hold kind of thing, but it's like, even if you get 10 games, like think about that, like spread 10 games, even over like a month, like, or those over the five months or whatever, still going to make guys that much fresher. It's going to make 
eight each game worth more. It's going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I'm definitely a huge fan of it, of the potential changes in, in some of these leagues. Cause I think that's what we've talked about at life. We don't need to go down the rabbit hole of the NFL again, but that's, <laughs> that's what works. Yeah. When everything's an event. That's what makes the, makes everybody so excited about it. Yeah. hundred percent. I spend more money on the NFL than I do on the NHL and there's 82 games in the NHL season and there's 17 in the NFL. So that's saying something now, speaking of cracks, I'd love to talk to markets. I also want to speak to this. I think that it, it kind of speaks to a lot of things and I hope that this doesn't contrast too much with what I had been talking about last year, but a guy that I follow on Twitter and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because it's ridiculous. He quoted or he said, lots of software companies who thought they had reoccurring revenue on lock do not have that revenue on lock. <laughs> lots of software companies are going to guide for second half acceleration. And this is just a Hail Mary pass, hoping that the macro improves. And I think what he's referring to, and it's best shown by a tweet market tech map, which shows all of the different SaaS software companies in the United States. And there's 11,038 solutions. And I don't think that there's necessarily a need for that many. In the same way that Canada has seven banks and the United States has 5,900, I think there's probably some important consolidation that needs to happen in software where that thing, that software layer that costs thousand a month or two, $20 a seat, $20 a seat, meaning $20 per employee you have in your firm. I think a lot of that is getting cut. And if you're a software investor today, you really need to make a, take a hard look at the solution or the company that you're invested in. Or if you're a company operator and even myself in a very small business, I am stopped. I just stopped paying for multiple things. Lost my wallet greatest thing that could have happened. I just <laughs> stopped paying for six software solutions. So this is, I think, going to be, there's going to be some significant deceleration and growth rates in software companies on a go forward basis. While the economy continues to be resilient, I would be very concerned about those, those software businesses that have already taken a hit. I mean, let's just look at like Kathy Wood's arc. It's down 78% from its all-time high still, even after a rally. It's drastically underperforming the, the NASDAQ 100. And for those that perhaps can't visualize this in your head, just think about the companies that are owned inside of that arc. It's, it's not, they're not generally profitable. And I think that, when you take a peek at the NASDAQ 100, you start to take a look at, well, yes, there's a hundred names in there. There's also the largest, most profitable businesses to ever grace the planet. And those are much larger percentages. And it's a big reason as to why it's performing way better than that ARC, that, that company that everybody was buying from 2020 to 2021. So basically on a go backwards basis, to, to what I started this conversation, I, I, I think that if you are someone investing in software, thinking it's going to rally back to where it was in 21, as the, let's say the, the Jerome Powell starts to cool it with regards to increasing interest rates, 
I think you're going to be disappointed. And people are finding Jesus when it comes to cutting costs and they'd rather not cut employees. They're cutting software solutions. And I, it's going to continue to accelerate. I believe this, this guy that I was quoting earlier said that his department inside of his business has 83 software solutions that they're paying for. He's, he figures he can cut it in half. So I was going to say some, some fat to trim. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's just going to really bleed out and it's not going to be pretty. So take a look at your portfolio, see where that's heavily concentrated. I'd take a look at it and, and really get to understand what that, that company produces as a Mm -hmm. solution and where it sits inside of your workflow or where you imagine a business might utilize that and figure out whether or not there might be a secondary solution that's free inside of a Microsoft suite or Hootsuite or whatnot and and see if it's prioritized or not. Because I think that you'll find they're not. And a lot of these growth rates are kind of fake. They were great when we were sitting at home, but they're just not as important as perhaps you might think. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things from that tweet thread too that kind of hit home for me was just like, this is obviously not a real quote, but just in jest or whatever, but saying like software companies for the last 10 years, quote, our business model is incredible. Zero marginal costs, zero distribution costs, amazing margins. And now customers to vendors during a downturn, you need to come down on your price. The cost, this costs you zero to make, serve and distribute. You said so yourself. So we have this amazing business. Well, why is it you need to come down or we're going to leave? What are you going to do? What else are you bringing at the table? You're, you're showing us that you have this product, but like what else have you, what have you changed? What are you doing? How can you work with us as customers? as your clients to, to get through this. And like you said, there's going to be, there's going to be some winners that come out of this. There's going to be the, the, the cream will rise to the top like anything, but there, we, we, we've used that term that there's some fat to trim in the industry with, with many different ones before. And it seems like this is a reckoning for, for them. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So I, I'd also be remiss if I didn't speak to the fact that Jerome Powell raised rates, 25 basis points. And with that, spoke to a whole host of things. And if you are someone who pays pretty close attention to the United States and their their situation there, they've had a few bank failures. JP Morgan made a large acquisition. It seemed as though that they've <laughs> benefited largely from this, this, call it bank run on some of the mid-sized banks in the United States. And Jerome Powell spoke to this in his in his after after his statement, he had a question period. And he expressed that he was optimistic that the crisis in regional banks was contained. In his prepared remarks, he said that the conditions in the banking system have actually improved since March. And that was when Silicon Valley Bank failed. And during that Q&A session, he also said that regional banks are now improving their liquidity positions. So he's, he's fairly optimistic here. However, it's hard not to see that this is a, that the market's not buying it. Because if you look at the ETF that covers this, the, the regional bank index, KRE, it just made another new low on Friday. And it's, it seems to have no bottom in sight. And I think that this speaks to the power of social media and how it affects markets on a go forward basis. 
I think that they're they can really be weaponized, and especially in banks when you you consider the fact that they take your your deposits and then they lend them out over long periods of time. And if people start to get scared about that proverbial Ponzi scheme that they run, well, it just so happens they don't have the money they gave you because they they've lent it out. I've explained this on multiple podcasts, so. It's a existential risk. And I think that in Canada and in the United States, we are definitely going to see a change from our governments in, in the way in which we protect our deposits. I think that CDIC and the FDIC insurance, the Canadian version, they do a better job protecting their depositors in the United States. Ours is only 100 grand. So I'd like to see that bumped up. That would be one of my asks for my politicians. I think it should be covered no matter what, that if our banks are that important that we should de-risk them, especially in Canada. It makes no sense that we have any any limit. 100000 makes no sense to me at all. These businesses or these banks will get bailed out so fast. If we ever see a bank run in Canada, that I think that it just makes no sense not to have it at all. So I guess on a go forward, what, what really happened last week? Well, Powell said that the, U- the, the U.S. economy continues to be strong. He sees the, the labor market to remain robust. He believes that it's, it's, there's increasing likelihood. And the market kind of agreed with him that there's going to be that, that soft landing that he's been, he's been preaching. I think it's pretty shocking that we're still continuing to see a likely, in the S&P 500 anyways, we're going to see a $212, $215 earning, earnings, and we're trading at future forward 19 to 20 times earnings right now. We're, we're over 4,000. The market seems to believe that we're going to get a rate cut. So by call it end of the year, so in five, six months. And it's it's weird, but we're he, he seems to be threading that proverbial needle. Now, come back to Canada and you go to BNN Bloomberg, the, the Canadian version, and there's more and something that I'm noticing anyways, and this is something I watch a lot of, it's we're getting... Our economists, that seems to be something we care about in Canada, whereas in the United States, they make fun of them. We here still think that they know something. And they're all going on talking about that there's an unhealthy amount of jobs in the United States or in Canada, sorry, and that the Bank of Canada has made a mistake and they need to rethink their rate pause. And it's possible that the Bank of Canada increases once again. So... We're sitting at four and a half percent. I'm not sure that we have room for that, especially given our our mortgage situation and our and our our housing market. But the intensity and the speed and the frequency of the of our beloved economists talking about rates needing to go back up again because our job market isn't showing signs of weakness is concerning to me. I don't think that we have that capacity in us. Now, as someone looking to buy a house, go right ahead, break it. But if if I'm being honest, I think it would be detrimental to and be a bad decision. I think it's the wrong thing to do. So that's my market yeah, update for the week. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm not sure if you wanted to transition to it now or not, but the Berkshire Hathaway Shiller meeting was also last week. And I mean, a lot of the same sentiments you kind of just went over were, were big talking points or at least getting... 
getting Warren and Charlie's opinion on. And a couple of things, I mean, I mean, the biggest, my biggest takeaways from it were, I mean, Charlie's comments in, in regards to, I guess maybe, and I think Warren basically talked about the same things, but just their, their, um, I'm not sure if it's amazement, but just they were kind of not even necessarily taken aback, but we're just, just how aggressive the, the messaging is nowadays through the fact that like the media bubble and like what media is and how fast word can travel over things like negative sentiment over banks or the U S dollar or whatever it might be. So you like, you have one news story and just how quickly that can, can change things and how big of a wave can be created through something where, you know, the, we, you talked about it when we first discussed the, the SVP failure itself, SVB, sorry, the whole system's built on faith and trust. And so as soon as you start seeing cracks in that, how it can truly make huge changes in how people perceive and make decisions in, in terms of the, whether or not it's day-to-day things or from an investment standpoint. So like I know that they had, Berkshire's had, had taken a step back on, but cooled kind of their position on certain bank holdings that they had and to move some money out and like, so you, you're talking about like the top of the top investor here and <laughs> even something is like, they don't necessarily believe that there should be this sentiment out there, but they have to react to what's happening. And yeah. so this is like the biggest of the biggest investors out there. Right. So that was one takeaway. And I think I'm sure you have a few more uh, items you wanted to go over, but it was a heavily attended one from my understanding as well. Lots of people thinking that this might be, you know, one of the last times you see both guys together. Yeah, I'm fairly disappointed I wasn't able to go myself. I would like to before those two guys pass, but they looked healthy. I can't believe he's 99. I know. He's going to be it's going to be 100. Unbelievable. And he just sits there and you can just tell he hates everyone. <laughs> it's just like you're all welcome. But yeah, I, I, did you see the sign that Warren put in front of him? Held, <laughs> held to maturity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. Well, yeah, he had to explain that, and it seems I'm not sure who he was making fun of. I think a lot of people see that and they thought, "Oh, he's making fun of people who run banks and they don't understand how it works." But what I honestly do believe is that he's making fun of all of the venture capitalists that said that the banks are all idiots for ha- having these portfolios of undervalued or or securities in which are underwater and he's he's suggesting that well actually we intended on holding all of these until maturity we didn't think you were going to come and ask for your money back randomly all at once so yeah obviously they're under because the federal reserve has increased interest rates 5% in 12 months but I mean, give us a break here. We didn't think this was all going to come to a head right now, right? So I, I get uh, the the play on on their portfolio, what people think of of that held to maturity with regards to banks and and whatnot. They had limited commentary on the financial sit the because they're basically they only own Bank of America. That's their mm-hmm. bet. That's the one they like. But the the biggest thing really was, I mean, we had Apple earnings last week. That came in hotter than expected. I was fairly surprised by the strength actually in in their iPhone sales. It really blew me away, actually. I didn't maybe it's just me. I'm I'm caught up in this 
I ain't getting a new iPhone until they give me a USB-C at the bottom. But they continue to see increased revenue, increased units in which are still in use. So that's a big number for them. They've gotten rid of the, and this would have happened, I think, in 2016 or maybe it was 2018, but they stopped reporting the amount of units sold. And now they're more concerned about the amount of units that are being used. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is important, especially as they transition from being a hardware company, a company that sells a technology hardware to being a platform and a sales as a service model and probably a bank. Did you see that they had a billion in deposits in the first week that they opened up their bank? That. Yeah. What's their and, rate? Four point something, right? Yeah, it's so, great. Yeah. It's really good. But also, I ask you this question, Cam. As a, we're a country that trusts its banks more than anybody. Mm-hmm. If Apple comes to Canada mm-hmm. and opens up an Apple bank, would you move to it? Depends if it's 5% or not. No, no, I don't think so. I, I, I No, I don't think I would. Interesting. I have, I, I mean, to talk, go back to the trust and faith and, and the fact that the system itself, that's what it's built on, right? Is that you, I was, I was actually talking to you this week and getting some banking recommendations for myself and then just kind of shopping around a little bit. And I thought it kind of reflected on it. And I was just like, I've been with my bank, like the bank that I'm with since I was like, I'm just with my parents, right? I think that's what most of us do. Like you go to the bank and open up your first checking account and get your debit card and you're all excited. And most people I would say for the most part, unless you've had a terrible experience or if you've needed something specific that, you know, maybe a local bank or whatever, a branch or whatever hasn't provided for you and you decide to move, you've just been with the same thing the whole time. And it's just, it's never even like, again, for me, it's like an afterthought. They're, it's just completely built off trust and faith. So, I mean, has Apple built trust and faith with me? I guess to a degree. Like, I mean, I I don't think twice about my phone's information being secure. Like, I mean, to the degree that I care about it kind of thing, right? Do you, and, do you even consider buying an Android phone when you go to renew? No, not really. But again, I, I think for, I've talked to you about this a bunch probably once in the podcast at least that like i am not the perfect person to be asking about this because i'm not going and comparing or that makes you the perfect person can well it does because the person who does go and compare isn't normal isn't normal okay fair enough yeah well i guess yeah then you're right i don't i don't necessarily get maybe once maybe once i've considered it maybe five years ago because my brother had a Google phone or, and I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Let's check it out. But outside of that, no. So, but to be the question that you first asked in terms of if they opened a bank, would you go to it? I think my answer, if I really think about it, I think my answer is still no, because that's not what they do in my mind. That's but don't you I think they would do it better? I don't, maybe, I don't know, but again, like I wouldn't be a first mover with that, I guess. Maybe that's the easier answer. And then I would, I would not be the first person to put my money in. I would wait and I would talk to someone like you if you decided to go over and be their first customer. I'd be like, oh, yeah, how knowing, was the experience? Knowing me, I'd be first mover just so I could say I was first mover because that's how I am. And then complain um, about it, but, but yeah, all the glitches. Yeah. 100%. But, but I think, I, I'm not saying that they couldn't do it. I'm not saying that they're not obviously having success with deposits to begin with, but... I don't, 
I, if I'm, if I'm the, the voice of the people, if I'm the normal man, I'd like to think that most people would just like, wouldn't identify with that. And it wouldn't be a first thought, but again, I'm going back more to like how I internally feel with the, the trust and faith thing. So I don't feel that building that side of my life being aligned with it all being in, I also don't like the fact that all my information's in one spot. I hate that feeling, but I also don't know what the uh, alternative is from that perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I've made modest efforts to change over from Apple to an Android life and I've had minor success doing it. However, I'm still back. Still got the blue bubble. It's, it's a challenge. I think that they're, they've just, they're ingrained in our lives and, and the new technology that's coming will create a new platform. And I feel as though this is the new internet layer for us. And it's in a similar fashion to banks and the way in which we've, we set up our financial lives at the bank in which we started with. And I am a gypsy when it comes to banks, I will leave. If you make me mad, I'm gone. And if I there's feel 50, disrespected, 50, there's a 50, 50 chance that I have me on any given day. Yeah. If you, <laughs> if I feel disrespected, I will be gone and I will go through hell to win and to, to leave. <laughs> if it means that I make you regret saying or doing or not being fast enough. So even if it's like, I will cut off my nose to spite my face yes, when it 100%. comes to banking. So with that being said, I'm of the opinion that I generally despise their monopoly. And that's mostly because I'm probably too emotional about their competing businesses. And I think that it's bad for the economy. However, if I'm being objective and do I think they make my life better? Yes. I have a Mac Pro with an iPad Pro with a iPhone, 15 pairs of AirPods, and I'm, I couldn't be more ingrained into their system. Yet, I despise them, hate them. And I'm probably unique in that position. That isn't well, I, I how most people position, feel about them. I think your position as an, an investor and someone who matters might, like, you know, the business, like you have learned more about the business than any, than most users of the product or the company would, right? So I think it's a different aspect. Yeah. I think, I'm sure if you asked, like, so it's like Berkshire would hold, they hold 5%. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So like a huge number, right? So, and so I think he, there's an off quote on there too, where he was talking about holding Apple going into whether or not we're already in a mild recession or into downturn, et cetera. And he just said, I'm, I think more people are more likely to give up their $35,000 second vehicle than they are their $5,500 iPhones. So I think it's probably good, right. It's a good holding. I think we're probably in a position where we might decide to buy more. And which is just it's just so insane. It's five percent of Apple. But the that sentiment just that when he boils like he's such a good does such a good job boiling things down to something simple where you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I totally get that. Like you just listed off the five things you have sitting there. Like you're not getting rid of those things. No. Like if, if anything, like it's if gonna expand when they they're they're going to um, they're gonna they're going to add an AI or a AR oh, yeah. glasses. They're going to they're going to integrate this. They're going to have the first access to me 
with regards mm. to their chip being exceptional and being able to throw a language model on my computer that I don't need to access in the cloud. And that's just going to ingrain me even more because I'm going to train it on their products. And I'm just, it's hard not to look at it and understand that, yes, it, it deserves its valuation. It deserves all the praise that it gets. I understand it. I'm just like, as a virtual questioning, should it be that case? Should it be that way? That's what well, it should be broken up. Their app store needs to be separated. And if they did that, they deserve everything else. Quite frankly, I think that they, they use and abuse their, their app store to the detriment of our economy, to their detriment of, of the consumer. And with the exception of that, they deserve all of their hardware and all of the, the success that they've gotten from that. They should just mm -hmm. never be able to leverage the fact that I literally bought the most expensive headphones I could that were not Apple and they were unusable across <laughs> all my devices. It literally made me so mad for a full two weeks. I sent them back to the company that I bought them from. And I said, these are unusable. There's nothing wrong with their hardware. But they do not integrate with my Apple devices. And I'm sorry for you. Mm -hmm. But your headphones are not more important than everything else. And that's too bad. And to me, that is anti-competitive. So yeah. that's also a good way to boil it down for sure. But I get it. Not it is what it is. So we're not going to get a ton of additional things to talk about this week because we are running out of time quickly. But Did Cam, you want to hit up Airbnb? Yeah. I want to talk about this. This will probably be my recommendation for the week as well. He was on Jason Calcanis's This Week in Startups and he was interviewed for whatever because they have a ton of new products being released. But also, he has a really interesting way of thinking about the, the way in which his app, which is really low, they don't own assets, basically. They don't own, they don't own real estate. They don't own the cloud infrastructure. They run really lean. And he's proud of that and believes that his, the, when you buy Airbnb, you're buying the brand, but then you're also the experience and then everything that they know about you as a traveler. And he wants to talk about that more and whatever. But what I'm actually most impressed by, and they just did this mo massive rollout where they have 50 new things that they added to their app. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Now, I'm not an Airbnb guy. I don't like going to them. I prefer hotels. I actually think there's better value there. Now, with all that said, Brian Chesky as a CEO and the fact that they're rolling out and delivering on all of these, the, they're delivering new product over and over and over again and fast. And they're responding to the concerns that people have with their app, with the fact that they have transparency issues. They, they, they don't love the, the cost of, of cleaning and all of these things, all of the things that you've, you, everyone's used Airbnb. And if you have, you have your, your issues. They are addressing them. And I think that that's important. De, re, being reactionary in this day and age has never been more important. Mm -hmm. And Brian Chesky, a who is more incentivized for that stock to go up than anybody in the history of, of being a CEO and founder of a company, I think. <laughs> Cause if you, you go and look at his, his stock comp package for the next five years, it's absolutely mind numbing how much money he'll make. If the stock goes up like 300%, it's insanity. However, he is willing to make improvements to the experience, the product itself, 
at the detriment of perhaps revenue on the short term to improve it over the long term, to integrate it into everybody and and improve the user experience. And I think that's, it's nice to see. Mm-hmm. Only a founder yeah. can do that. I was going to say that, that that's like, I think you had made that comment in our show notes, just how it's, it's cool to see someone at that level just be kind of in the trenches. And obviously, I mean, Twitter is a great way to get your message out, but he seems like he's obviously, him and his team have, have gone through and a lot of these things, like, I mean, at the end of the day, they're not earth shattering changes to an app in my mind. Like, I mean, not that I know necessarily the ins and outs of adding some of these features are, but the fact that you roll out 50 plus upgrades all at one time or whatever over the summer is pretty impressive. And a lot of them are just like straight up like user things that you're finger tapping on to make things easier, which I think everyone at the end of the day loves. So very impressive to do that all at one time and to at least present it in a way where it's like, we're listening to you customers out there. And we're sorry that you felt the need to go to VRBO or somewhere else. And we want you to come back to Airbnb because now our service is that much better. And it's not just for actually for, you know, the consumer or the traveler. It's also for the hosts. There's been upgrades and changes made from them to make it easier for them to understand what's the market like in my area and how can I give more information that people are asking for that they've been DMing me and I just want to post it, but I haven't been able to post it. (laughs) So that's another, I think, good thing too, because obviously you want to increase your number of hosts as well. I saw one other thing that they changed. I can't remember. I guess it was probably him talking in the video, Brian, that is, that they're adding like Airbnb rooms. Did you see this? No, go ahead. Well, essentially just like that instead of, and like not that there wouldn't have been you know, single rooms available in a house to begin with where you can just rent the room. But essentially it's like a whole network of these things now where it's a hotel, (laughs) like at the end of the day, but like you, there's more, more information on your hosts essentially that you can, because essentially you're staying with this person, potentially their family or whatever it might be. And the room rates are like the average room rate is like $67 or something like that across whatever's available. So obviously that's been a huge feedback thing too. Like, I mean, we talked about it probably a few months ago. It was probably coming off summer or into the fall or whatever. But talking about how it seems crazy how much the cost of all of these things have increased over time. Like if you look at your history on Airbnb or whatever it might be, your Kelowna trip in 2018 versus your Kelowna trip in 2021 and how big of a difference that was and all these additional costs that are going into things. So Obviously, that was another big feedback thing. Is like, especially people who are probably using the app all the time. It's like, I don't need to get like need to be picking from forty-eight one-bedroom thing apartments where I have all the space that I don't necessarily need or whatever. I guess like I'm not someone who's ever going to use that. But again, this is like I guess the what I got from the video was like it was like more of a return to their roots, which was about just like people being able to travel on a budget. And it's almost like part of the experience that you're staying with someone. So it's like that kind of hostile type living, but being able to stay in something a bit more higher class and you have the ability to learn more information about who it is that you're able to stay with too. Cause there's like more host interfacing with it as well, but mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see how it works out for sure. But anyways, it was interesting to me just from the perspective of kind of looking at that lower cost it's other things, obviously, to try and grow things, but 
Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing for me with Airbnb and what's probably going to happen in the next, call it five years, there's going to be major policy changes from the perspective of a municipality allowing them to operate in their city. Because it's just, you look at, I mean, there's been a bunch of tweets recently about Austin and the rent problem that they're having. And Mm -hmm. the it correlates perfectly with Airbnbs. And I think their prominence in the city is up something like 1200%. Say, God damn Joe Rogan. Yeah. Thanks, Joe, (laughs) Tim, Tim Dillon. And I think that that's going to be a huge headwind for them on a go forward basis. It's just impossible for me not to see how the, if you're Vancouver, Toronto, who has this unaffordable city, how you allow there to be Airbnb businesses in your core while people are literally living on the street because they can't afford to live there. And Hawaii is already doing this. Yeah. Hawaii has been doing it for the last year. Maui, not yet, but the rest, the big Island. So, but yeah, the, the interview with Jason Calcanis is my reco. I can't find a good TV show to save my life. So if anybody has something, please send it my way. Cam, you got anything? No, I know we're running long today. That's a good one. That was a good, I listened to that interview as well. I think we'll, we'll leave it there. All right, chat with you next week.